Now we're going to open the Bible, okay? So grab a Bible, open it up. We're in Luke, the Gospel of Luke. We teach from the Bible every week because we believe it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. We believe this is God's Word, so we open it up every week. We learn from it. We study it. In this series in Luke, we've called the series The First Followers of Jesus. The First Followers of Jesus covers chapters 4 through 9 of Luke. We'll continue on. Uh, midway through the summer, we'll turn to a new series as, as kind of the theme shifts in the book of Luke. But right now, we're looking at the first followers of Jesus, how Jesus built this unstoppable movement, how he would amaze his first followers, and then call them to follow him as students, as disciples, as followers. This week, in chapter 8, we're focusing in on the power of Jesus, the power of Jesus. Jesus has amazing power. And I bit off a little more than I could chew this week with 34 verses. Uh, so I'm going to try to rush, uh, but buckle, buckle your seatbelt for a, a possibly long morning. We'll see how this goes. The power of Jesus. I believe we all need someone in our life who is powerful, but also cares. Who's powerful, but also cares. Some of us know people that are powerful, but they don't really care. And some of us know people who care. They're not really powerful. They can't really do much to help us. And in these stories, we see displayed the power of God and Jesus himself. One of my great joys as a dad uh, was just playing games with my kids, wrestling, running races with them. And as they got older, old enough to understand, sometimes we would do this thing where like, we'd be wrestling around and I'd let them pin me down. And then I'd say, do you want me to use all of my power? Right? Like... (laughs) Do you want me to use my full strength? And they'd kind of giggle, and they're like, ah, yeah. And of course, then I would whoop them, right? Like, then it was easy, because I was a grown man, and they were little children. Um, sometimes we'd run a race, and then they'd win, and then I would be like, do you want me to run as fast as I can? And then we'd run again, and I would defeat them. Now, I can't do that anymore. They're all grown up, right? So they're all stronger and faster than me now. Uh, but what I point out is this idea That in fatherhood, but more important than that, in God himself, we have someone who is strong and someone who cares. We have someone who is powerful and we have someone who loves us. And that's who Jesus reveals himself to be. So what I want to do is I want to start with verses 22 through 25 that kind of sets the stage. It sets the stage for the power of Jesus and it kind of ends with a question they're going to ask a question like, oh, wow, like, who is this guy? They're, they're shocked. The, the story in Luke is taking a turn now for them to be amazed more even than they have before at the power of Jesus. So starting in verse 22, it says, One day he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. They're terrified. Verse 24, they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then Is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? You see a theme in this story that we're going to see in the next several stories we're going to read, and that story is the power of Jesus. 
people's fear of Jesus, their wonder at Jesus. Jesus reveals himself as someone who is powerful, but also who loves and serves his people. A couple other things that I think are really cool in this story is it says, as they were sailing, he fell asleep. Uh, Something I love to point out, Jesus took naps, right? So that's really helpful. But that's not really the main thing that this story is about. The story is really about his power over the wind and the waves. And so this little story ends, again, I'm going to repeat the question they're asking at the very end. In verse 25, they were afraid, they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Now, any good Jewish boy or girl would immediately have an answer to that question. Who is this that can calm the storms? Who is this? Anybody that knows their Old Testament would know the answer. Their top 40 of the Old Testament, the Psalms, the songs that they would sing, the prayers that they would pray, they answer this question. The Psalms say in Psalm 89, O Lord, God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are? O Lord. This is capital L-O-R-D. This is Yahweh, Jehovah, the personal covenant Lord of the Old Testament. O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. That's the answer that Psalm 89 gives. Again, any Jewish boy or girl knows that answer to who is this that calms the waves. Psalm 107 says it this way. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Who is this? Who is this that can calm the storm and still the waves? It's the very God of the Old Testament, here revealed in the person of Jesus. Now the next stories are going to reveal even more. They're going to tell us even more about the power that Jesus has. These stories are going to show us that Jesus has power over demons, over disease, and over death itself. But I want to pray that we would know the Holy Spirit's power spiritually that we would hear and receive the words. Let me pray that he'd be with us. God, we pray that you would teach us, that you would reveal yourself to us in your word, that as we are opening it, studying it, learning from you, that your spirit would set our hearts on fire, that we would see uh, with amazement how great you are, how powerful you are, and that we can trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, big idea is the power of Jesus, and it's displayed in three ways. So, each story is going to kind of unfold the same theme. So, I was joking, I bit off more than I can chew, 34 verses, it's long, and I'm going to try to go fast, but they are all connected. They are all connected in a literary way with this theme of his power. His power is displayed again and again, and we'll also see some interesting kind of story elements where every time you've got people that are afraid, every time you've got people falling down at Jesus' feet, And so you see these kind of themes again and again of Jesus being honored, adored, kind of being people being afraid of him, even because his power is so incredible. So again, we're going to see stories unfold. Jesus has power over demons. Jesus has power over disease. And Jesus has power over death. So number one, Jesus has power over demons. Jesus has power over demons, so we should follow him, right? That's what been this, this whole series has been about that. Follow Jesus, trust him, obey him. Jesus has power over demons, so 
follow him. And I just have to say, by way of aside, again, lots of new people coming in all the time. We're not the kind of church that talks about demons every week. I just want to clarify that, okay? Like, we know that's weird. But we are the kind of church that believes the Bible. So when it's here, we're going to talk about it, okay? So Jesus has power over demons. We see this in verse 26, the next story. Then, so they're sailing to the other side of the lake. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, the other side of Galilee, okay? So Galilee is the lake, but generally when you're talking about Galilee, you're talking about the western side, which is the Jewish side, and there would be more pagans and more non-Jews on the other side. So they're sailing over to the non-Jewish side. And another little aside, a couple of, uh, I think it's one of the other gospels calls it Gadarenes. There's two cities in that same region over there, Gerasenes and Gadarenes. And they would have both been unfamiliar to the Jews, and so the Jews would have kind of thrown out both terms, talking about it. A lot of different ways to explain when you have slightly different variations in the stories that the Gospels give us. Uh, I encourage you to not let that be a barrier to your faith. It's good to ask those questions and pursue those things. It'd be kind of like saying, uh, something happened in Flower Mound, Texas, and then someone else saying, something happened in Dallas, Texas. Well, it's, it's kind of the same place, right? <laughs> like they're 20, 25 miles apart, but it's kind of the same place. And so we see the same thing in the text in, in lots of different stories. Verse 27, when Jesus had stepped out on land... There met him a man from the city who had demons. He had demons within him, possessing him. For a long time, he had worn no clothes. He's naked, so that's weird, just to take a weird story and make it even more weird. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And that's also weird, and that's also scary and creepy, right? A lot of things that are culturally different from... 2,000 years ago in the Middle East to America and today, right? But like people that live in a graveyard, that was weird then and it's weird now. Uh, I grabbed a picture of a graveyard, spooky graveyard with uh, moonlight coming through. That's a common setting for, hey, spooky story is about to unfold, right? Like we just know that. If you're watching a movie and all of a sudden there's a cemetery and it's nighttime, what do you know? You know something bad's about to happen, right? Like, ah, something scary and evil is about to fall upon us. And that's the same kind of setting you'd have in, in the Middle East as well. Verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. So this is really important. We'll come back to this again, but the demons know who is in charge. The demons know the power of Jesus as the son of God. The demons are afraid of Jesus. So one of the things we struggle with when it comes to demons and evil and some of these things is, is thinking that it's like this kind of almost like equal battle. Who knows who will win? If you ask Jesus, you're on the winning side. Jesus has power over demons. Trust him. Follow him. Verse 29. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So like nobody had power over this guy. Nothing could stop him. And he lived in isolation. But now Jesus has power over this guy. Verse 30, Jesus then asked him, what's your name? And he said, Legion. This can be up to like 5,800, almost 6,000 troops in Roman uh, units of the military at this time. Uh, so this number just means a lot. We don't know that this is an exact number, right? But maybe more of a 
general, like a ton, a million, you know, like how we would throw out a number, but it really just means there were a lot of demons, right? So this guy says, my name is Legion, for many demons had entered him. Then they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Uh, so Revelation prophesies that that's the end, right? Cast into the lake of fire, into Hades, that the devil and his angels and his servants, the demons are all going to be locked away. They're like, don't, don't send us there yet. They know their end is coming. They're like, please don't send us there yet. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. More emphasis that these are non-Jews. Jews didn't touch or mess with pigs. So a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. They committed a mass suicide. Pigs jumping off a cliff into the water and drowning. This is a bizarre and, and terrifying story. So when the herdsmen, verse 34, saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Again, this theme of fear. Yes, this is scary stuff. They were afraid, seeing the power that Jesus had over this man. So if you're terrorized by someone powerful, and then you see them subdued by someone more powerful, chances are you're going to be afraid that, that then that more powerful person is going to terrorize you as well. So they were afraid. They see him sitting at his feet, listening to Jesus. Verse 36, those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. This part of the story is weird to me. Like Jesus just set you free from this demonic guy. Some of the other stories say there were more than one. Jesus seems to be overpowering evil in their community, but they resist it. And that's a weird thing that we see in a lot of stories in the Bible. Uh, the gospel comes through, it changes people, they're set free, but maybe it throws off the economy. Maybe it throws off what people are used to socially, and they don't want any part of it. Jesus is setting people free, and sometimes even when Jesus is setting people free, other people are like, no, that's weird, we don't want that. So again, weird story. We don't completely understand why they would ask Jesus to leave. It's like, okay, he got in the boat to return. Verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. We see a, a general kind of, this is a little theological aside, uh, we see this overlapping of the ages in the Old Testament. There was a focus on the Jewish people. Now, God always allowed all different tribes and races to join the Jews. So you could be adopted in by faith into the Jews, just like you can be adopted into the church by faith now. But it was clearly much more you know, monocultural in the Old Testament. It was more of a singular national tribe. It was more of one ethnic group. God allowed people to come in and become Jews, but... It was, it was basically the Jews, right? It's more of one tribe. And so what we see happening in the ministry of Jesus is he's focused on the Jews, but he keeps kind of breaking out and impacting the other tribes. So here we see that kind of butting up against it where he's going to go back and focus on the Jews, but he's telling this guy, yeah, go preach to your people on the other side of Galilee. Go tell them. And later in the book of Acts, we'll see the complete explosion of the church where the apostles go out preaching everywhere and we see every tongue and tribe coming into the church and it becoming 
the most multi-ethnic religion the world has ever seen. And that's what we're a part of today, right? We represent 10, 20, 30 tribes just in this room right now. Like imagine other places that are even uh, more diverse than clean Texas, right? And what we are a part of is this incredible religion where there are people of all different backgrounds that are part of it. And so this guy represents the kind of beginnings of that, right? Jesus hasn't kind of fully gone that direction. He's focused still on the Jews. But even in the Old Testament, just like in the New Testament, it was always for all people in all places. It was always for all the nations to be glad in the Lord. And so we see him say, okay, go, go tell your friends about this. But I want to focus on the demonology because that's the weirdest part of the story, right? So what do we do with demons? Number one, I think it's helpful to just recognize we're in our culture a little worried and weirded out by it. Like it's not, it's like not a normal thing in our life. In other cultures, in other countries, people are very used to demons and spirits and, and weird things like that. And so we just got to recognize that culturally we have different blinders on some things that seem more bizarre to us in the Bible, other things that seem less bizarre, right? Like to us, sexual purity and demons just seems really weird because our culture isn't about either one of those things. But to another culture, that would seem very normal, right? But maybe something else would seem weird. And just recognize no matter where you come from, you come to the Bible with prejudices that make it hard for you to believe and trust in the scriptures. C.S. Lewis has some good advice. And he says this about demons and the devil. This is his introduction to the Screw Tape Letters, which is a helpful book, but it's totally fictional, written by C.S. Lewis. But it's kind of about how the devil or how demons might tempt us to walk away from God. So in his introduction, he says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. You see that? It's like those are the two extremes, and both are not healthy. One is to be obsessed with demons and spirits and talk about it all the time. And the other is to be like, oh, that doesn't exist. That's stupid. I'm too smart for that, right? I'm a modern person. C.S. Lewis goes on and he says this. They themselves, the demons, the devils, they themselves are pleased by both errors, right? Like a demon's going to love it if you're completely terrified of them and obsessed with them. And a demon's going to love it if you don't even think they believe or they don't even exist, right? Either way, they have a tactical advantage over you. And so he says, they're pleased by both errors and they hail or greet a materialist and a magician magician, uh, with the same delight, right? So, So they're saying, A demon is like, hey, we love magicians, we love materialists. What are we? More commonly, most of the time, we're materialists. That's what most modern people are in America. We tend to be kind of scientific age people. There's nothing outside what I can measure, you know, scientifically verify. That's kind of tends to be where we are, especially my generation. Now that's fading a little bit. As we see the breakdown of the West, we see the breakdown of civilization. There's a pendulum swing back to more obsession with spirituality and demons. So I think that's somewhat maybe a difference um, in cultures, but it's also sometimes a difference in age and generation. I see the younger generation being much more open to spiritualism. So I'd say, watch out, don't be obsessed with it, right? But equally, watch out, don't be a materialist that says none of this exists. That's a dangerous boat to be in. So Lewis says it that way. Here's the biblical background for what Lewis says. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, What do I imply? That food offered to idols is anything? Idols, false gods? Is that anything? Or 
Is an idol anything? Paul says, no. An idol, a false god's not anything. It's nothing. And then he goes on, clarification. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. <laughs> now, I preached on 1 Corinthians 10 a couple of years ago. You can find that in our, our archives on our website. Uh, I think the sermon's called Glory War. Um, and so we talk about this in more detail. But Paul is kind of threading the needle on this nuanced view for the Corinthians. The Corinthians were kind of like us modern people. They're like, oh, we know God is more powerful than that. So we're just going to go hang out at pagan festivals and indulge in pagan worship all the time. Paul's like, no, 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 no. Like, it's no big deal if you eat some meat offered to idols because there's no power over the meat. But if you're hanging out with a pagan friend and your pagan friend's like, oh, this is idol meat, don't participate because they're trying to pull you in to their demonic worship. So Paul's like, the, the line is the intent. Don't mess around with demons. Demons are real. Compared to God, they're nothing. And so it's this like interesting nuanced view of like, yeah, we have a lot of freedom. We don't have to worry about like being contaminated by things like, oh, I touched this meat that came from a pagan temple. So now all of a sudden the demon jumped on me. He's like, you don't have to have a superstitious view about it, but don't you dare mess around with demons. <laughs> and so Paul's threading that needle between the two extremes of like thinking they don't exist at all. He's like, yeah, compared to God, they're nothing. Jesus has power over demons. But then there's this other view where you're just always worried where you're walking and what you're touching. You know, you're just thinking about it all the time. No, there can be freedom in Christ. He can set you free. He has power over these demons. How do we access this power? First step that you access Jesus' power over demons is to ask Jesus to save you. It's to start a personal relationship with Jesus. I mean, really the question is, which team are you on? Do you belong to Jesus or do you belong to the world? Because the world is under the sway of the devil and evil. And we all know that. We just look outside. We see the world. The world is broken and crazy and nuts. So ask Jesus to save you. Say, I recognize I'm a sinner and I, I haven't made this world better. I've made it worse. I've contributed to this broken world. So Jesus, I need you to forgive me. I need you to save me. And he will. He will do that. It's that simple. He'll adopt you into his family. He'll lay all of your sins on the cross with Christ so that when Christ died, he became a sacrifice for your sins. Your sins are paid for. It is finished. They're cast as far as the east is from the west. And then Christ, through his resurrection power, proved that he defeated your sins and all of our deaths. And he's risen from the dead to show that he is king of the universe, that he does indeed have this power over sin and brokenness and demons and death. And so that's where it starts. Entrust yourself to Jesus. Secondly, begin to read his word. Begin to listen to what Jesus says. What are Jesus' directions for you? Are you just going to listen to the lies of this age and what everybody says and what everybody thinks, where the power of evil is always interfering? Or are you going to listen to what Jesus says? Are you going to read his word? Are you going to obey him? That's the, the most transformative two steps that you can take. Ask Jesus to save you and start following him. That's like Spiritual Warfare 101. And then the book of Ephesians gives some more detailed instructions on spiritual warfare. The book of Ephesians talks about literally fighting demons and the devil. I encourage you to go read it on your own, but it gives this kind of summarizing, uh, this kind of thing that I can summarize here with uh, identity in Christ, um, fighting with the word, and praying. 
Those are kind of three things that come back again and again in that section where Paul talks in Ephesians 6 about spiritual warfare. So he talks about putting on the armor of God, and that armor of God is always the gospel of Jesus, the salvation we have in Christ, the righteousness we have in him. And so all the pieces of the armor are like basically our identity as saved ones. So the idea is this, every day reorient yourself to your identity in Christ, that you belong to him. Repledge your allegiance to Jesus. That's spiritual warfare 101. You just, you're putting on the helmet, you're putting on the breastplate, you're saying, I belong to Jesus. This is my armor. I'm his. And he says, the only, uh, a lot of people point out, the only um, aggressive weapon used, the rest of it's armor, but the weapon of the sword is, is the Bible, the word of God. So you're going to fight, you're going to fight with the word, right? Like when Jesus fought the devil in the wilderness in Luke, he's quoting scripture, right? So if you're going to go head to head with lies, use scripture. Don't rely on how smart you are that you can figure things out. Speak scripture when you're faced with disagreements, with doubt, with condemnation. That's the way demonic forces fight, with condemnation. So fight with scripture and then pray, pray constantly, pray all the time. That's, that's the way that we fight, according to Ephesians 6. As you begin to conform yourself to Jesus, as you begin to obey his word, I think there are some obvious patterns, too, that we want to engage in, right? Like, it's Father's Day, so dads, pay attention to your kids, right? Make your family more important than your career. One, one of the biggest temptations for men who find our identity in what we do is to say, career at all costs, and then I'll give the B-team leftovers to my family, Dads, this is a good day to say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip that around. I'm going to say my family comes first. My career gets the leftovers. Do you need to go to work? Yes, go to work, right? Work, it's a, it's a beautiful blessing from God. Just don't find your identity in your work. Believe that Jesus is enough. So you can just go to work, use your gifts, help people, but love your family. Prioritize your family, your kids, your wife. Uh, a lot of other things we could focus on as well. Um, man, one of the biggest things I see corrupting us in a demonic sense, I know this is going to sound like a real jump, is focusing on screens all the time. Like we're so addicted to screens, whether it be video games or social media or movies, we're just, we're just in it all the time. Uh, and if you're, not, if you're not like completely addicted to porn and you're just watching, you know, mildly trashy stuff, you can think it's fine, right? But really, if, that, if that's all you're doing... You're, just, you're filling your head with, with alternate, alternate voices, uh, other views. So again, make sure you're limiting, you're budgeting those things in your life. Don't let yourself just be completely carried away by it. Listen to God's word. Fight spiritual warfare through prayer, through identity in Christ, through listening to the word. Okay, last point. Jesus has power over death. Jesus has power over death. I, I want to back up a little bit with this section uh, as we look at Jesus's Oh, wait, no, I skipped a point. Oh, no. Where are we? Oh, no. It's disease. It's disease. Jesus has power over disease. I told you it might be a little long today. Jesus has power over disease. So verse 26. No, verse uh, 40 through 48. I've confused the slide guy, too. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. Um, this people pressing around him is the same word in the previous section about the weeds choking out the, the growth 
of the plants that had been planted in the parable of the seeds. So this is kind of like a choking, squeezing, claustrophobic crowd. Verse 43, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. Peter, Peter's kind of like, that's a crazy question, Jesus. Right? Like, that's kind of what Peter is saying. We don't understand fully the balance of how Jesus can be fully God, right? And then sometimes he's, he's veiling his godness. He's living fully as a human. And so I assume this means he legitimately didn't know, right? He, he's veiled his godness. He's living as a human. He's like, yeah, I don't, I don't actually know who touched me. We're, we're not sure exactly because that's a confusing topic for us in Scripture. But he's asking them, who touched me? Verse 46, Jesus said, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. Again, with the falling down before him. Falling down before him declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It's a beautiful story. According to the symbolic Levitical purity laws of the Old Testament, she would have been a complete outcast, an outsider, symbolically, ceremonially unclean for 12 years socially isolated, full of shame, as well as physical pain, lost all her money trying to get cured, living on the outside of society, struggling with life. And so we don't know exactly why she came at Jesus the way she did, but we have a pretty good guess that because of this shame, because of being ceremonially unclean, she was afraid to look at him in the face. And so in a crowd, she sneaks up behind him. She sneaks up on Jesus and, and grabs hold of the edge of his garment, and she's immediately healed. It's an amazing story. And I think it reminds us that no matter how shameful we are, God still shows his grace to us. No matter how much we think we are beyond the reach of God and that we can't look at him face to face, we have this beautiful story where Jesus looks her in the eye and says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So I really want you to hear this story personally. If you feel like your sin has been too great for Jesus to be able to handle you, or you feel like your abuse in your past is too horrible so that God is not present in your life, Jesus wants to look you in the eyes and say, your faith, your trust in me makes you well. Go in peace. Be well. Be whole. Be clean. That's the posture of Jesus. And again, we see this kind of shifting between the Old Testament world and the New Testament world. It's colliding in the person of Jesus. We see the new, clear execution of the new covenant in the New Testament, the writings of the apostles, but that doesn't really come in full swing until the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so on this side, we're not worried about the Levitical laws in the same way, right? We're not wrapped up with all of the purity laws and all of the ceremonies of the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews is very clear about that. But here, they're still in the middle of all that. And yet Jesus marks the beginning of a change where instead of Jesus worrying about people making him unclean, the power of God 
just emanates from him and he makes others clean. It's so beautiful everywhere he goes. People that are ceremonially unclean, that are outsiders, that are rejects, that are outcasts, God is bringing them back into paradise and saying, no, you're clean, you're well, I love you. So the question is for you, are you one of those people that feels like I can't face Jesus face to face? If I'm going to face him at all, I'm going to have to sneak up on him, right? Like sometimes we feel that way. Or another horrible way this works itself out is, you know what I can do? I can get my life together. I can clean myself up, and then I could approach God. But that's not how it works. God is the one that does the cleansing. Jesus is the one that does the healing. So we admit, we confess, like we do every week in our worship service, confession and assurance. Confession, I'm unclean, I'm diseased, I'm broken. I need you, God. And assurance, Jesus says, I heal you, I love you, I've given myself for you. Know that you are not outside the reach of God. Some of us feel like we need hazmat suits to approach people like this, or maybe we feel like we need that to approach us. I grabbed a picture from E.T. Anybody saw the movie in the 80s, The Extraterrestrial? This was like one of the scariest scenes. I was young enough that this scene terrified me. Like, what are these guys in the suits doing? Like, what's happening, right? I think I was only eight or nine when this came out. And these hazmat suits, they were worried, of course, by getting, uh, you know, germs from aliens, which makes sense. This is a common thing, right? Whenever you know someone that's from another place or they seem dirty or they seem outsider, you're worried that their cooties will get on you, right? And so in the Bible, there were a lot of laws that symbolized that. But those laws, we, we can laugh about it, but those laws were really symbolizing something more important, and that's the reality of our sin, Like, that's the real cooties. It's not the cold or the flu that we might have. The real cooties that we have is our sin, our separation from God. Jesus has power over physical disease, but Jesus' power over physical disease is always a pointer to how he's making everything right. And the ultimate problem is our spiritual separation from God. So Jesus heals people left and right. Like, it happens all the time, but he keeps bringing it back to you. But what about you and God? Have you confessed your sin? Have you entrusted yourself to him? Do you recognize that he wants to heal you spiritually? That he wants to set you free from selfishness and teach you to love? He wants to set you free from moral impurity and teach you to live in a holy way? That's the real issue that Jesus wants to deal with in your heart. And our physical wellness, wholeness, sickness is kind of a shadow compared to that. He cares about that. That's important, right? Our bodies are temples. We should take care of ourselves. If you're sick, pray that God would heal you. See doctors, right? Pursue health. Health is a good thing. Just know that it's a shadow compared to the ultimate health of knowing Jesus and walking with him. So Jesus has power over disease, and we can pray and ask him for his help. Reach out to him. Ask him for help. But have the faith to keep living in this broken world, even if he says, like he said to Paul, no, not yet. That's not going to be fixed until heaven. Even if he says, I'm not going to heal you now, but I will heal you later when you see me face to face. Have the faith to trust him. Paul says that when Jesus revealed that to him, he said, my power will be made perfect in your weakness. This is in 2 Corinthians 12. So when we still have the disease lingering, when we're still struggling with that, know that the biggest issue is our relationship with God. The biggest issue is whether or not we trust him. And he will give you the power to walk either in physical strength or physical weakness. Entrust yourself to him. Jesus has power 
over disease. Okay, now we're on the third point. I was trying to skip to you earlier. Part of it is because these stories get mixed up, right? So we're going to look at the story in 49 through 56. Jesus has power over death, but I have to back up to verse 40. So it's like you start one story, gets interrupted by this woman, right? So the first story was Jairus comes and says, hey, I need you to help me. And then this other woman comes up and interrupts that story, right? So that was what happened in the previous story. So let's read verse 40 and 41 again. So now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who is a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Interesting little story echo. The woman had been bleeding for 12 years. The girl's 12 years old. We don't really know what that means. A lot of times that's a symbolic number of completion or something big. Um, but I think more important here is we see Jairus, again, falling down at Jesus' feet. Now, Jairus is called the synagogue ruler. So the synagogue was their gathering place. It's literally what synagogue means. So it would be like our church building. It would be that equivalent. They would come and read God's word. They would sing the Psalms, very similar to kind of the model of how we do worship today. And he was the ruler of the synagogue. You might say the president of the synagogue. Uh, when we look at archaeology and read what scholars have written about synagogues in the past, this was different than the rabbi, the teacher. This was more like the rich president of the board who had the family life center named after him. Okay? This was the millionaire that had paid for the building, and so he got to be in charge of the synagogue. He wasn't the, he wasn't the preacher. He was the guy that was in charge because of his money. And so even more, this shows his humility in being an important, rich community leader who's willing to fall down at the feet of this peasant rabbi that doesn't have a place to lay his head, right? This poor rabbi that's going from town to town and this rich businessman falls at his feet and begs him, begs him to heal his daughter. So verse 49 through 56 gets to the rest of the story. But what happens in between? Jesus is going to heal Jairus' daughter, and what happens, really? Previous story, remember? The woman reaches out and grabs him. What do you think Jairus, important man with lots of money, is thinking when this outcast stops Jesus? He's probably mad. Like, this guy's, this, this gal is stealing the healing from my daughter, right? So with that set up, let, let's see what happens in verse 49. Verse 49. It says, Wrong chapter. There it is. Verse 49. While he was still speaking, Jesus, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. His worst fears have come true. Like he was probably already mad. He was probably mad about the crowd. They, they could barely move through the crowd to get to his daughter. And then he gets interrupted by someone stealing a healing from Jesus. He's probably even more mad. And now... He's told, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Verse 50, but Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. This is a beautiful reversal of what has been going on in all the stories. All the stories, there's fear. All the stories, people are falling down. And he says, don't fear, only believe, only trust me. Have faith. Believe and trust in Jesus. Jesus has power over even death. Verse 51 when he came to the house, she, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. All were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. 
think of, think of everything that Jesus had done right now. Think of the ways that he had uh, displayed his power. This reminds me of being a father and having a two-year-old rebel against you. You know, You're like I could squash you with my finger if I wanted to. They're laughing at Jesus. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're stupid. She's dead. But Jesus is going to show his power. So they say, they're laughing at him. Verse 53, knowing she was dead. Verse 54, but taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. This is a beautiful reversal of fall down, fall down, fall down, fall down. Jesus says, stand up, stand up. Verse 55, and her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. We see this in stories. It's interesting because it's right up against the other place where he said, yeah, go tell everybody what happened, right? But that was in like the pagan side of the lake where they weren't operating much. I think he was like, yeah, it's okay if the story spreads over there. But here on this side of the lake, he doesn't want him to spread the story. He was keeping it a secret. He only brought in Peter, James, and John. Um, so a couple of different issues that I think are both kind of true. Uh, one is that we don't want people that aren't really committed followers spreading the story of Jesus. He wants to be in charge of his own press, right? Uh, another issue is we didn't, he didn't want it to become all about healing, right? The crowd's already beginning to press on him. It's, it's starting to begin to be a situation where he can hardly move anywhere, Right? And he wants to continue telling the story of the coming kingdom of God. He wants to keep preaching, telling that story. He's not all about healing. He's ultimately about the good news. He wants to keep preaching. And then thirdly, in the Gospel of John, it says this many times. It says he would specifically say, it's not my time or it's not my hour. And so just very practically, like, it's not time for him to be killed yet, right? (laughs) He's trying to stretch out his time a little more. He has more ministry to do. So again, we don't know exactly, but these are all kind of clues we have from Scripture. He says, don't tell anyone what happens or what happened. Um, So again, I love the reversal here of everyone falling down, everyone being afraid. And here he says, don't be afraid, but believe in the power of Jesus. And don't stay down, but rise up. So what does it look like for us to live this out, right? Because we're still on this side physically of death and resurrection. Like, we're not there yet. The New Testament says again and again, our hope is in the complete consummation of everything. Jesus taking away all disease, all death, all pain, all crying, all mourning. We are headed there. So how do we live now in light of that? If we will rise from the dead, how do we rise up now? Because we're not really there yet. So the New Testament talks about this in a lot of different ways. Uh, In John chapter 12, it says, you know what? Something can't have new life. A kernel of wheat can't give new growth and new fruit until it dies, goes in the ground. Uh, There's another image that's used of that in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection. Like, yeah, we don't really know what kind of bodies we're going to have, but we know that the life we have now pales in comparison to what we're going to have in the future when we see Jesus face to face. And so we have these, these different passages that encourage us to think about our life now is like a strange little seed that we're planting, looking forward to God bringing fruit out of that. So this image just comes up again and again, multiple times in scriptures, but I think one of the clearest is Romans 12. It says, because of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Because of what Jesus has done for you, in faith, step out in faith and say, I'm going to spend what I have for God's glory. 
I'm going to just plant my life in the ground. I'm going to share my gifts in the name of Jesus. I'm going to use my skills to help other people, make the world a better place, to let people know that there's hope in Jesus. Whatever those skills are, whatever those gifts are, they can seem small, they can seem insignificant. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's like, yeah, our our bodies, our lives now are small and insignificant compared to what they're going to be in the resurrection. And so we spend ourselves knowing that God's going to do good and beautiful things out of that. We actually serve others like we talk about all the time at the church. We give of ourselves. We use our gifts to help other people, trusting that we have a God who by resurrection power does something good and beautiful with that. He says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, the biggest resurrection power uh, passage in the New Testament, says your labor is not in vain. So many of us, so many of you have spent your labor you fought to free countries and, and seen them crumble into disarray. You've given your life to people that don't seem to care. You've poured into children that maybe have wandered. You, you've spent yourself in ways that you think, God, this is, this is all a waste. It's not a waste. As you spend your life for God's glory, God will do supernatural resurrection power things with that life. Plant your life for his glory. Trust him, follow him, because Jesus has power even over death. That's what these stories are telling us. So we've got, we've got to end here. Sorry. You know, I could preach for another hour, but I know you want me to stop. Power of Jesus. We see the power of Jesus. And the question, who is this? Answered really explicitly by Psalm 89 and Psalm 107. It's God. Jesus is God present with us on earth. And then he gives three more stories just to make sure we get right that he is powerful, that he can defeat any enemy. We get his power over demons. We get his power over disease. We get his power over death. And so remember, in the end, summary, Jesus is powerful. You can trust him. He's not just the one who can help you. He's the one that loves you and will help you. I loved showing off how powerful I was to little five-year-old children when I was a dad. Those were great days, right? Now I have grandkids, so I get to do it all over again. Um, But I think what was really best for them were those days where they saw me run out of power. Those days where they saw me fail and I had to confess my sin and ask for their forgiveness and recognize that Jesus forgives us and we need his help. Where they saw me in weakness say, I don't know what to do, but we can look to the word for help. I don't know how to fix this, but we can pray and ask God to help us. So I want to leave you with that picture. The, the power is not something that we hold in and of ourselves. The power is us depending on the power of Jesus and trusting ourselves to him. Run to him. You can trust him. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you have saved us through your death and resurrection. Help us to trust you and follow you in our daily lives. Help us to make a difference in the next generation because we know you're good and we know you're powerful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.